Marion is going to talk to us about hepatitis C virus co-infection, new drugs, and new strategies. Thank you very much, Connie. What a tough act to follow. I am not going to entertain you. I'm not even going to be able to move the slides forward. What I want to talk about today is really what's the current therapy and then to give you a little feeling for what's going to be available in the next year and the future so you can sort of see where things are going. So uh, the first uh, audience response question, DAAs will be available without in alpha interferon in 2013. Substantial drug-drug interactions will be a problem in co-infected patients. Similar SVRs are expected in co- and mono-infected patients, and randomized controlled trials are required for co-infected patients, which are true. Okay, well, we'll get to that later. You all are very well aware that liver disease is the second most common cause of death in HIV patients after HIV. And so it's really a major issue, and the majority is actually hepatitis C. And if you look at a comparison between hepatitis C and HIV, they're both single-stranded RNA viruses with very high mutation rates. The viral load is prognostic in HIV, as you're all well aware, but it is not prognostic in hepatitis C. It's only useful in treatment. You can have a viral load of 4 million and live to be 100, and a viral load of 50,000 and be on the liver transplant list. The goal of treatment in HIV is still just remission, whereas it's a cure in hepatitis C. There's no vaccine for either. Latency does not occur, doesn't integrate into the genome, whereas it's usual in HIV and integration occurs. So this leads to uh, hepatitis C being curable and HIV not as yet. So what are the treatment goals? The treatment is eradication of the virus. That's really the basis of the treatment. It's an infectious disease. But once you've eradicated the virus, then you normalize liver enzymes, improve histology, improve quality of life, decrease progression to cirrhosis. And even if you have cirrhosis, you can decrease the amount of fibrosis you have, decrease the risk of hepatocellular carcinoma, and overall improve survival. So while getting rid of the infectious disease is the most important, it's really what happens in the liver that gives you the outcome. So a question, alpha interferon and ribavirin in a standard of care. The majority of patients are candidates for treatment. Genotypes 1 and 4 have lower SVRs. Neuropsychiatric side effects are common and triple therapy with either Bisepravir, Tilaprovir, and Pegriber is standard of care in HIV. Please vote.
Okay. So it is true that number one, the standard of care is still peg riber. It isn't. A, neither drug is yet approved for uh, co-infected patients. It's not true the majority of patients are candidates. It is true that genotypes one and four have lower SBR. And it doesn't matter whether you look at mono-infected patients, co-infected patients, BA patients, inner urban city patients, university-based patients. Only about 30% of patients are candidates for interferon-based therapies because of psychiatric problems, drug use, non-adherence, or severity of disease. So this has led to this absolute surge in trying to get away from interferon. And the first is the new protease inhibitors, which are only uh, useful in genotype 1, that must be used with interferon and ribavirin, but bring a number of good and bad issues. The good is that there's a higher SBR. There's a chance to have response-guided therapy, and I'll show you some of that. But the bad is the number of side effects, resistance, and drug-drug interactions that you heard earlier. So combination therapy in mono-infection has led to responses instead of in genotype 1 being around 50 to 54% with PEG-RIBA increased to 75% for naive patients. Non-responders gone up from less than 10% to 50% and relapses as good as naive patients. It's led to shorter therapy. Unfortunately, we're still stuck with ribavirin. Ribavirin decreases the risk of breakthrough, decreases the chance of relapse, and prolongs SBR. Every combination so far without ribavirin has been suboptimal. Doesn't mean we might be able to get a, we won't ever be able to get away with it. Means not yet. Uh, protease inhibitor peg therapy is more effective in African Americans and cirrhotic patients, but it comes at a cost of higher side effects and discontinuation rates. This is the genome. As you know, it's a single-stranded RNA virus. Here at the 5' prime are the polyproteins, the core and envelope proteins, and then here are the machinery for making virus. But in actually in the uh, body, it's not in a long line. It's actually woven within the endoplasmic reticulum. And you see here this membranous web with the replicase complex protease uh, helicase, the NS3, attached to the NS5A and the RNA-dependent RNA polymerase. And they're really very closely interwoven with each other. So you can understand that if you manage to inhibit a number of their functions, you could turn off the viral response. This is how we used to think about non-response, and it's important. Whether you're a null responder, where you give interferon ribavirin, nothing happens, or a partial responder, or you get a response and then you break through while on therapy, or you get a response but relapse after cessation of therapy. We've added to this important 
time points that have made a difference in how we tailor therapy. And that is the rapid virologic response, RVR, that is negative at four weeks, undetectable HCV RNA at four weeks, whereas we used to talk about an early virologic response at 12 weeks to decide whether to continue interferon and ribavirin. We've now gone to this rapid virologic response, and the new protease inhibitors use the extended rapid virologic response, that is, undetectable at week 4 and 12. And these are the people who are early undetectable, who are candidates for shorter therapy. And shorter therapy from the 48 weeks is down to 24 or 36 weeks. And shorter therapy with the newer agents that aren't yet licensed are down to 12 weeks. This is a comparison. It's in your syllabus between telaprevir and bisepravir. They both require interferon and ribavirin, or you get enormous drug resistance. Uh, bisepravir uses a lead-in, whereas telaprevir doesn't. They use slightly different pegylated interferons. They're both twice a day, but telaprevir has now data uh, three times a day Q8 hours, but now telaprevir has Q12 data. Uh, the duration of therapy depends on whether you get an early response or not. And shortened therapy, this response-guided therapy, about 58% um, in the trials were able to shorten therapy for, with telaprevir for 24 weeks, and about 44% in the bisepravir trials to 28 weeks. And they've led to an SVR about 30% above Pegriber alone. Relapse rate is low. Adverse events are significant. I know that infectious disease is going to take over the treatment of hepatitis C, but I also know two things. It won't be after until after interferon disappears, and it won't be with current protease inhibitors. You need a psychiatrist, a um, Health, you need uh, nurse practitioners, you need an army to look after these patients. Not only do they need their blood checked every week, they need to have their emails answered three times a day, and they need to come see you when they start their rash very frequently. So I'm going to give you the co-infected data, because the exciting news is, unlike with PEG-RIBA, with uh, protease inhibitor in PEG-RIBA, the results for co-infection are as good as the results for mono-infection. And this is, this is the new paradigm, and it makes us feel very encouraged that there's a great future for our patients. So this is either telaprevir with PEG-RIBA or placebo PEG-RIBA, patients not on antiretrovirals or patients on efavirenz or adazanavir. And these are the data, and it doesn't matter what regimen you're on or you're on nothing. The overall response was 70% uh, at week 4, and at week 12, 74%, which was a 29% increase over PEG-RIBER alone, which is 45% on the right. And compared to, um, this wasn't head-to-head, -head because 
the FDA does not require randomized controlled studies. This is a major change. They now only require a phase three study of all, all patients on drug. No randomized controlled studies required. And you can see that the 74% is very like the 75% in other studies of mono-infection. What about, mm, here we go, Bisepravir. So Bisepravir has this lead-in of Pegriber for four weeks, then the addition of Bisepravir and follow-up. And you can see here that you have increasing, in red, increasing uh, percentage of RNA de undetectable. So SVR12 is 60% but it's actually 34% over Pegriber alone and very similar to what's seen in mono-infection. So this is exciting and very positive for patients, although patients have to be limited on what medic other medications they can take because as you heard today from Dr. Dong, there are significant drug-drug interactions as telaprevir is a CYP3A4 and PGP substrate and a 3A4 inhibitor, and bisepravir is a 3A4 substrate and inhibitor and also alpha-ketoreductase substrate. So there are many drugs the patients can't be taking, and I actually uh, use the Liverpool drug-drug uh, interaction site when my eyes aren't glazing over. Um, so the summary is, if a patient's not on antiretrovirals, they can either have bisepravir or telaprevir with Pegriber, only genotype 1. If they're receiving raltegravir and two NRTIs, they can use either HCV protease inhibitor. If they're on atazanavir, they can use telaprevir at standard dose. On efavirenz, they need a higher dose of uh, 12, uh, 1,125. And if they're on other antiretrovirals, they should be part of research studies. You're all aware of the Dear Doctor letter with the protease inhibitors and bisepravir. It's interesting that was in normal volunteers, whereas if you look at the phase three studies, there was the same number of SBR whether they're on an HIV protease inhibitor or not. And that's actually being studied in the ACTG. So any combinations can be enrolled and are closely monitored. These are some of the contraindicated drugs. And the good news is now if we're only looking at 24 weeks or in the future at 12 weeks, we can stop many of the drugs for a short time for patients. This is the drug-drug interaction site. This is a sobering slide. The cost of treatment is, at a minimum, 90 to 100,000. But that's not accounting for using the growth factor stimulants you need, blood transfusion, multiple um, laboratory tests that are required, frequent RNA testing. So yes, it's 
been shown to be cost effective because you, a much higher SVR rate decreases the overall long-term bad outcome of hepatitis C. But in the times of uh, careful financial medical planning, this one might have a problem. So let's talk a little bit about what's coming down the pike because there are three drugs, two of whom have already gone to the F FDA, that will likely be available in the next 12 months. The first is cefosfavir, which is a polymerase inhibitor with interferon and ribavirin. And basically, all you have to look at is how high the bars are everywhere. You don't have to think very carefully. And what it tells you is that cefosfavir and ribavirin is extremely successful in treating patients. This is PEG with interferon and ribavirin, 12 weeks. So you, sometimes you can say to your patients, anyone can survive for 12 weeks. This is an NS5A inhibitor, dysclatosphere in genotype 1 or 4. And you can see here, overall, compared to PEG-RIBA in the very, very pale uh, lines, you can see that for genotype 1 overall, it's about 65%. It's better in 1B than 1A. I fixed this slide this morning. I don't know why it didn't get. Anyway, say la vie. Um, genotype 1B has a much better uh, response than genotype 1A, and that's because 1A only requires one nucleoside change to develop resistance, whereas 1B requires two. So all the studies you'll see, 1A always does less well than 1B. That's why when you see the Japanese data, they have much better responses not because they're better patients and more adherent, but because they're 99% 1B and they're 90-something percent IL-28CC, which is the good genotype. And here, in very small numbers, 12 patients, you can see that the cladosphere also is effective against genotype 4 patients, the patients from Egypt. So a second drug that likely will be licensed next year with interferon and ribavirin. And the third is semiprevir. I think they make these names so impossible so nobody can, A, it took me weeks to learn to pronounce them, but even to remember them. So this is um, the third, uh, pro, this is another protease inhibitor in genotype 1 naive and experienced patients looking at SBR24. And I, what I have to tell you is all the new studies with direct-acting antivirals has shown that an SBR12 is almost always the same as SBR24. So we've used SBR24 now since the 1980s. So 30 years later, we're moving on not to re just response-guided therapy, shortening depending how quickly you lose 
your virus becomes undetectable in serum, but also shortening the follow-up required to show that you've had a response. And here you can see that if you look on the left here, this is treatment experience patients with F3 and 4. So F3 and 4 is advanced fibrosis or cirrhosis. F0 is none. F1 is a little, F2 is moderate. So these are taking the hardest to treat, who traditionally have the, had the worst outcomes, even with the new protease inhibitors. And here you can see two-thirds of patients have a response if they're relapses or partial responders. And a third of the, those who didn't have diddly squat when they first got PEG-RIBA have got a response when you add a protease inhibitor. And then on the right is just looking at F4 alone, and you can see they're very similar, probably because distinction between F3 and 4 is quite difficult, just with a biopsy. This is the only HIV-HCV new co-infected study with PEG-RIBA to show you. It's with Semiprevir. It was presented at CROI. It's a once-a-day protease inhibitor. It's pan-genotypic. I showed you genotype uh, 1 and 4. This is preliminary data at SBR12 in the orange. And you can see that overall, 77% of patients had SBR12, a little drop from SBR4. And we don't have SBR24 yet data. And there was no difference between naive and relapses. And that's been shown with other protease inhibitors as well. And these are the patients who met uh, response-guided therapy. So remember I told you 44 to 56% of Bisepravir to Laprovir patients met criteria to shorten therapy. In this study, in co-infected patients, 88% might met criteria to shorten therapy. Another very exciting outcome for patients. And you can see their SBR12, three quarters of them, had undetectable HCV RNA at 12 weeks after cessation of therapy. What about all orals? And I add with ribavirin, because we haven't got rid of ribavirin. These will not be available next year. These studies are ongoing. What we're stuck with next year is still better direct-acting antivirals plus PEG-RIVA. Unless the drug companies have something I don't know about. That's possible, too. So this is data from cefosfibir, a polymerase inhibitor with and without lidiposvir, which is an NS5A inhibitor from the same company. And I think you've all seen these data, but this, these are in your handouts. That initially, on the left, is just cefosfivir and ribavirin. And you can see that in naive patients down the bottom, SBR12 was 84%, but in null responders, Patients who didn't have a response to interferon ribavirin in the past, only one of 10 patients had a response. This was a young woman 
with very little fibrosis, genotype, uh, IL-28CC, all the best characteristics. And I also bring up the point that one of 10 is not very many patients. Uh, in the first study ever of interferon, six of 10 cleared HCBRNA had undetectable HCBRNA in 1984. And when the first New England Journal paper that I was part of, but when they did large randomized controlled studies of 500 and 1,000 patients, 5% responded. So those blessed patients, it's always good to be in a phase one study, I tell my patients. You either die or get cleared. So on the right is the new data presented at Croy, the addition of ledipasphere. And you can see that the treatment naive down the bottom, 25 of 25, had undetectable HCBRNA at 12 weeks compared to 21 of 25 just on cefosfavir and ribavirin alone. But the really exciting was looking at the null responders. The people who didn't have a response to interferon and ribavirin alone, the addition of cefosfavir, ledipasphir, and ribavirin cleared in nine out of nine patients. Very, very exciting. Ledipasphir will not be available next year. This is data that you're probably all aware of through NATAP and multiple discussions because these are two different companies with an NS5A and a polymerase inhibitor with ribavirin. And you can see here on the left that 100% genotype 1A and 1B had SVR24, and nearly 100% of genotype 2 and 3. It's very, very exciting data that three drugs, again, had great clearance. So this slide is to sort of talk about the paradigm where we are, that at the moment, all co-infected patients are getting triple therapy, even if they're not approved, and just with a single DAA. And where are we going? Well, a year ago, we would have said we're going to the left to interfere on free regimens. But it's very clear that the first to be approved will be a direct-acting antiviral plus PEG-RIBA. And many of the studies are on both sides of to the right and the left. Uh, and proof of concept really shows that it's, it's, you can cure hepatitis C earlier with shorter therapies, but probably at higher cost. So what are the issues in hepatitis C therapy? I hope I've convinced you that there's different genotypes. Vesepravir, telaprevir only are against genotype 1. They must be used with pegylated interferon and ribavirin. Genotype 2 is more responsive. I've shown you the polymerase inhibitor data with cefosfavir. Genotype 3 isn't as easy to treat as genotype 2, and we knew that from interferon studies. Genotype 1A is 
has a lower response rate than 1B because of resistance issues. IL-28B that we thought we were going to get rid of because it was only related to interferon response. It appears that inducing an innate interferon response is important in clearance of the virus and may well be that IL-28 will still be important. Early data from some of the studies suggests that's not true. From other studies suggest it is true. So I think we don't have an answer yet. If you've had prior exposure to interferon, you tend to need more drug and perhaps longer therapy. The amount of liver disease you have is important uh, from uh, telaprevir and reciprovir data. You can't have response-guided therapy if the patient is cirrhotic. They need a year of therapy. Very few of the direct-acting antiviral studies have included cirrhotics, so the, the jury is still out on how long and how much therapy those patients will need. And pharmacy will be pleased to know that they still have a major role, and all of us should consider doing what many sites do, including our own, is having a pharmacist in our hepatitis C clinic. So they can tell us what to do because we don't know. So where do we stand in April 2013? I think we should select who we should treat. Given that there's a lot of toxicity and a lot of side effects, people who don't have fibrosis, who are F0, unless they're absolutely adamant they want treatment, I'd leave them for the easier, shorter, all-pill therapy and really focus on those with moderate to severe fibrosis who are going to need treatment as they may well decompensate. How do we assess fibrosis? Well, that's a long and completely different talk, but you can do it with a liver biopsy, you can do it with serum tests, you can do it with transient elastography, which was just approved in the US last week. Uh, I'm amazed that liver biopsies have increased in uh, frequency over the last three years. We do, I do more liver biopsies in co-infected patients than I've done in 10 years. It's critical to control HIV infection, to encourage adherence, and to avoid alcohol. Alcohol's been shown to negatively affect response to interferon. I don't know about all DAAs, but it may be only negatively affecting adherence. I don't know if it affects response as well. So, which are true? You can answer more than one. It's the same set of questions. DAAs will be available without interferon this year. Drug-drug interactions are a problem. SVRs are the same in mono and co-infected, and you need randomized controlled trials in co-infected patients. Great. So, uh, I, I sort of got a B. Number one is not true. 
Number four is not true. They, the FDA does not require, neither does the EMA in Europe. So randomized controlled trials will not need to be done for co-infected patients. And these two are true. Thank you very much. Go sit down. I was clear and perfect. <laughs> or oh, they're worn out. Maybe worn out. Questions for Dr. Peters? I think there was one over here. You can also just go to the microphone if you don't want to wait. Um. As far as you know, what percentage of patients have been able to complete the triple therapy without major complications? Well, that's a good question. In the trials, the dropout rate was under 10%. If you look at the cupic data from France, which was treating in the community all patients, the drop patients with severe or advanced fibrosis or cirrhosis, the dropout rate was around 30%. So if you take people who most need it, they're going to be the patients who have the highest toxicities. Um, so how are you monitoring patients for whom you're deferring therapy to make sure they don't have cirrhosis, and how often should you check for cirrhosis? That's and a good how? question. Um, if a patient clinically has evidence of portal hypertension, then it's obvious they have cirrhosis. They need to be monitored with upper endoscopy to look for varices, for hepatocellular carcinoma with ultrasound. If they don't have evidence of portal hypertension, then you can either do a biopsy after you discuss with the patient. Would they be treated if they had advanced uh, fibrosis? If you could do a non-invasive marker, a fibrosure, which is not very good if a patient's on atazanavir because they'll have elevated unconjugated hyperbilirubinemia. You can do an APRI or FIB4, which is just using clinical uh, available data, AST, ALT, and platelets. You could do transient elastography. We've been doing that with our patients under a research protocol, but it's like an ultrasound-looking at um, the stiffness of the liver, and you can monitor patients that way. And really, the discussion comes with the patient. If you would be treated no matter what, treat the patient. If you only want to be treated if you have significant fibrosis, then you have to work it out. Can you comment on lambda interferon in terms of efficacy and tolerability and approval, availability? That's a good question. Uh, I've put a little line up there, but I didn't go into it. Lambda certainly appears to have less toxicity and may be more tolerable. The question is, will its approval come after the world has moved on to all oral medications, or will it have a role? And um, I'm not a betting man, but when we have our little discussions, we seem to go back and forth. It may be that it came a little too late. Last question. What do you do about neutropenia during treatment? 
So as long as the ANC is over 500, I do nothing. And I get called every Friday between, because everybody has their blood work on Friday and takes their dose on Friday night. So between 4 and 7, I get 20 calls. And I don't write down the patient's name unless the ANC is under 500. <laughs> so they call me with an emergency 550, 650. So I thank them and hang up. If it's under 500, then they need to have Neupogen. There's no increase in infection rates. And those studies have been very nicely done. But we're a little neurotic. I know the uh, oncologists don't do anything till they get to 200 or some, even 100. I mean, I couldn't even think about it. But that's what we do. Oh, sorry. What do you do, Ron? <laughs> What's your panic value? Oh, you're treating 500. Oh, they're crazier up north. <laughs> That may be true, but I don't think it has anything to do with neutropenia. 